uh, to me, good architecture uh, necessitates the lo- genius loci. You have to be in the city. You have to understand the culture of this. You have to be part of the culture. You cannot just say, oh, I'm going to look at a map and now I'm going to you know, Google Earth and I'm going to know how to put a building. You have to be deeply embedded in the traditions of the city. You can't just, uh, you know, this kind of syndrome where you pull something out of the drawer and, and impose it on, on a city. That's kind of a banal city if that's what, what it does, just putting nice buildings, plopping them down. But if you are able to navigate with a sense of what you want to do and be able to communicate with people in an open society, you will deliver something that has longevity, isn't just for five minutes. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the home and design director at Departures Magazine, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. On this episode, I speak with someone who needs little introduction in the world of design, New York-based architect Daniel Liebeskin. Dozens of projects, towers, museums, and memorials bear his name, from Kentucky to Wuhan. His angular, kinetic style is instantly recognizable. And his empathetic and passionate outlook makes him not only fascinating to chat with, but turns him into architecture's unofficial rabbi, where he extols the importance of good design in the public sphere with zeal. Born and raised in Poland right after the war, in the 1950s, he moved to Israel before eventually moving on to New York. In 1989, he opened his studio with his wife and partner, Nina. Two emotionally impactful projects have marked the trajectory of this legend's career. The 2001 Jewish Museum in Berlin and the master plan for the World Trade Center following the attacks of 9-11. Today, construction is underway on the Dutch Holocaust Memorial of Names in Amsterdam, which we'll talk about. And since the recording of this interview... Liebeskin was selected to redesign the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the site of a mass shooting in 2018. If anyone can help make sense of these confusing and confounding times, it's Liebeskin. I caught up with the architect remotely while he was visiting Berlin to speak about the pandemic and New York City, his distaste for communism, his distaste for Trumpism, and the works of architecture that he learned the most from. And stick around to the very end for one final lesson. Daniel, I wanted to start with your childhood in Poland. The post-war years were very bleak there. How did that impact a young Liebeskind? Well, the city in which I grew up, Łódź, uh, is a, in a way a remarkable city. It's a kind of Manchester of Poland, industrial city. At that time, it was the second largest city in Poland. And of course, it has amazing palaces of Poznanski, the factories, the landscape of sort of working class people, but also some remarkable streets and, and some very beautiful buildings. So yes, I think it wasn't perhaps the architecture that impacted me, but the social situation because we lived under the dark cloud of communism, uh, the fog of antisemitism, uh, a kind of hostility to us and our identity. So yeah, that informed my idea of what it means to live under the shadow of history. And of course, you know, you have to remember that Łódź was, uh, I think, the third largest Jewish city in the world after New York and Warsaw. Uh, when I lived there, you know, after the war, uh, there were you know, almost nobody had been left. So that left a big mark, that, that absence of people, absence of Jews, absence of reality, absence of culture, uh, and its substitution by dictatorship and authoritarianism probably left the biggest mark on me uh, in that uh, sense for a child. You worked on a kibbutz when you were a young man. 
that must have impacted the way you think about just even just your attitude about life and work and interacting with the people around you, um, where it's sort of mixed together in this sort of socialism on a, on a, on a micro agrarian scale. Um, tell me a little bit about that, that time of your life and, and how it impacted you. It was wonderful. I mean, being in Israel was a sort of revelation coming from the, you know, from Poland and, and being suddenly in the Mediterranean in a country which was free. Uh, it was a complete shock to me and to my, to us, to my parents, to my sister. But, you know, it's an irony. I lived under communism. When I came to the kibbutz, I lived under real communism, not the fake communism of totalitarian systems, but a real practical everyday communism. And I have to tell you, I didn't like it. I didn't like, you know, on the kibbutz, of course, it's such a beautiful place. Everybody sleeps together. You know, we were taken away from the parents. We were sleeping together. We were working together in the agrarian fields and so on. But I thought, you know, something was missing, the individuality, the fact that I wanted to rebel. I didn't want to be sleeping with all these kids. I didn't want to be doing that work when everybody else was doing. So that taught me something about conformity, conformity in society, whether you think think it's good or bad, authoritarian or free. To me, conformity itself is a threat against the person. And so I have to say the kibbutz also taught me beautiful things about how we can organize places to live together in harmony, but also taught me that we need a space to get out, to be free, to be outside of that conformity and to think uh, for ourselves. So, uh, you know, being, you know, with, with, with that hat walking through the fields gave me a sense of, wow, the world is so much more concrete than it seems to be when you buy something in a store. Uh, and, and knowing that process from A to Z, sort of from growing the thing to being able to harvest it, to cleaning it, to eating it, and then cleaning your dishes at the end. That was an amazing idea of the kibbutz. And the kibbutz was a social organization that's so admirable, uh, you know, because it was no different from a monastery. You know, the monastic orders did exactly the same thing. They were kibbutzim of the Christian church. You know, of course, they were not as egalitarian. They didn't have women. But the similar idea, let's get away from the world. Let's establish a utopia. And of course, a life without utopia is not worth living. Before we return to Daniel, I'd like to thank our sponsor, B&B Italia, a leader in luxury designer furniture. Founded in 1966, the company stands out for its representation of contemporary culture, and for its research and innovation, which has allowed the brand to create products with unique style and elegance. The brand is the fruitful partnership between the company's research and development center in Northern Italy and the best international design professionals. The iconic products of B&B Italia radically mark the history of design. The brand has so many legendary pieces and there's one to fit every personality. If I were to suggest an icon of B&B Italia to Daniel Liebeskind, I would recommend a Tufty Time Sofa by Patrizia Urchiola. This duo-toned, grid-like system of rational-looking modernist squares may sound cold in theory, but in a room, it creates a comfortable and sculptural quality that has been a bestseller for years. I'm sure Daniel Liebeskind would enjoy its smart, urban style. Which iconic work of design is right for your personality? Visit bebitalia.com for more information. As a diehard New Yorker, I feel a kind of debt of gratitude to Liebeskind for his work on the World Trade Center master plan that helped the city's urban environment to heal. Bookending this tragedy, the city has a completely different issue to tackle today, the pandemic. 
as someone who understands healing and connectivity so well, I wanted to ask the maestro what he thought was next for the metropolis we both call home. In this new light of the pandemic and the way that it's impacting, especially commuting and the way we come to and from work, what have you been thinking the past year about the future of downtown Manhattan and, and the World Trade Center? Well, we know in history that uh, catastrophes can befall cities. Cities can be destroyed by various kinds of catastrophes. Luckily, uh, unlike 9-11, which was a violent act of terror, the pandemic is a different kind of terror. It, it's It's... Uh, epidemiology. It's its everything that we don't see, which is threatening our lives. But it's not going to last forever. Uh, I'm not uh, one who says now people are going to leave New York, New York will become empty, ghost city, everybody's going to go to Hamptons or move out of New York. Not at all. I think New York will come back even more resilient and stronger. But of course, right now, we see the absence of people on the streets, in the in the skyscrapers, in transportation. Uh, although, ironically, I walk through the site almost every day at Ground Zero, and I see a lot of people lining up to see uh, the memorial, to see the names. So, in a way, memory is stronger than the epidemic. People want to see those names. They come there, despite the fact that it's uh, difficult to get there. And, of course, we have now another tower being built of housing which was also one of my ideas in the original plan, that there should be people living, not only offices, but there should be plenty of, of real estate for regular people to live there. And that might happen uh, as a result of the pandemic. People might realize it's good to have more residential towers uh, next to Ground Zero. Has the pandemic changed the way you think about cities in general? Is this an opportunity for systemic change? Well, first of all, one of the successes of Ground Zero is that it's a public space. People have access, they can be socially distant, they can enjoy the fact that there is a place for people. doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, you can have the diversity and uh, sort of energy of the city represented in a public space. So to me, the public spaces have become more and more important. But I think what we have to address is the inequality, the income gap that creates ghettos of the rich and ghettos of the poor. We can see this in the pandemic. The poor neighborhoods have suffered much worse than the more affluent neighborhoods, and we should not wonder why. There is such a discrepancy in justice of how to treat quality of citizens under a democracy. So I think this pandemic might make us rethink, make, make authorities, make politicians rethink why are we living in such two different worlds? Why is the city so divided? A city which is fractured uh, in this way cannot be a good city. A city has to really be a city of everyone living. We, we cannot just, you know, sort of have two cities in two different places and, and service the city in, in, in a way that is unfair. So I think this will become a great uh, object of the future. Also, I think we realize that with more silent street, less carbon emissions, less flights, uh, the carbon footprint is, is getting better. So we realize that pollution and, and all those things that threaten the city's survival and our health is also something we have to think of. So I think these are issues that will be really large issues, I think, in the future for people thinking about how to organize the city. But of course, public space, health, uh, addressing income inequality, those will be, I think, great subjects for transformation. Do you think that architecture and urban planning can impact those things? Uh, because I think to a, to a generation of design editors and journalists, you know, we there was this whole period of design can change the world and we're going to create new materials. And we're going to do we're going to 
you know, fight for bike paths and we're going to do all these things. And then when this a period like this happens, you start to wonder, hey, maybe politics is, is 5,000 times more powerful. Do you still believe that something like architecture and urban planning can actually impact things like income inequality and how? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a good example. I won a competition for NYCHA, New York uh, Public Housing Authority, uh, to build public housing uh, in the uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, in the Sumner houses. You know, it's projects of of a previous era. And my idea was that we have to move out of the stigma uh, of what used to be called social housing and create a really affordable housing, low-cost housing, which is beautiful which is sustainable, which isn't sort of, okay, I'm stuck in this box, uh, but bring something that has a social importance, that gives people individuality, that is customized. Every window is different. There is a social space. There is an atrium. Uh, The form of the building doesn't look like social housing at all. And I'm building another project in Long Island, also for, uh, you know, senior citizens, also low cost. Uh, Why shouldn't these uh, projects be, uh, the way forward. And I think architecture has a huge uh, impact. You know, architects should not be just designing for the rich and, and the luxury and all that stuff. They should be addressing, and perhaps that comes from the fact that I grew up when I came to New York as an immigrant in the first public housing project in this country, built in 1920s, uh, the Amalgamated Housing Cooperative in the Bronx. And how amazing was that? There were no elevators, there was no air conditioning, and yet the life there was beautiful. People, you know, interacted, there was a community, there was a sense of pride. Nobody worried that it was, you know, 100 degrees in the summer. People, you know, sat on the stoops and on the staircases, but they had a wonderful life. And that's where I come from. You know, I didn't build my first house for a rich uncle or, you know, my parents were factory workers. So that's the environment I come from. And I believe that that we have to address uh, our architecture to regular people. You know, that has to be the aim of architecture. It's for everyone. I wanted to bring up the Holocaust Memorial in Amsterdam, which has been long planned and is now finally under construction. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what that experience will be like? Well, the uh, Holocaust Memorial in Amsterdam is underway. It's being completed. I think it will be completed by September. It will open. Uh, look, uh, we don't notice that Holland had the greatest per capita murder of Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, we know the story of Anne Frank, but we don't realize that more than 110,000 uh, Jews from Amsterdam were murdered. Uh, that has never been really acknowledged. So building a memorial now is the ripe time to remember what happened in that city. This Amsterdam, in many ways, was a Jewish city. The, you know, my site is next to the Portuguese synagogue, the famous synagogue where, you know, Spinoza went to, you know, uh, buy. It's next to the Jewish area where Jews lived. Uh, and yet the catastrophe of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, uh, really eliminated, you know, the, the city is, uh, has an absence of, 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 of people that were the core in many ways of the city. 12% of the city was Jewish. So to create a memorial that is valid, we have to remember every name. So I have 110,000 bricks, including bricks that are empty that will have names still put on them, each one devoted to a single name of Jews from Holland. And they are sort of the the foundation of the memorial. They they are like a foundation of a typical Dutch house made out of bricks. But on top of them, there are sort of wings of light, uh, and and they are in the configuration uh, that is complex, that follows the symbolism uh, of a Hebrew word for remembrance. 
And those wings, so to speak, reflect the city. They are stainless steel that reflects the city as it is today. So you have a double experience. You have an experience as you walk through this labyrinth of names, and you'll be looking for names of loved ones or names that you know about, but you'll be illuminated by light that shines to you from a new city around you and, of course, the history of that city as well. Liskor are the four letters of Hebrew, meaning to remember. You won't see them, but they will be there shining that light. And I think it will be an experience of something wondrous because there'll be, of course, the inevitable sadness, but also the sense that you have to take on this foundation of the city and also move it forward to the new city all around you. So it's something very exciting, something I truly believe in. And I think I think people will be able, able to walk through it pretty soon. It's right in the center next to the Hermitage Museum, next to the Portuguese synagogue, really in the, in, right next to the canal. It's really center of Amsterdam. As someone who's created so many memorials, um, how do you personally judge success? Like when you visit, maybe you go three years from now, you're just visiting after you're just going to walk in. Um, how do you personally judge success? Like, how do you know you've done it right? Well, you cannot do it with hubris. You cannot do it just by claiming it. Look, I built a, a exhibition, really installation at uh, just before the gates to Auschwitz, uh, the lens of faith. Very small installation, but more than a million people chose to walk through it, chose to look at it. Uh, there are millions of people come to the Jewish Museum in Berlin. There are millions of people come, you know, to to the memorial in Ottawa, Holocaust Memorial, the center of the capital of Canada. Uh, there are, you know, I built a memorial to the Holocaust on the grounds of a state capital in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, it's it's there are memorials for wars. There are memorials for uh, different. This is a memorial of the soldiers and 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 people who were saved by the uh, by Americans in World War II. So every memorial demands a difference, a, a, an approach that is unique. How do you know that you're doing? You have to. You have to be connected to the spirit of the place and the spirit what is beyond you. Uh, it's not some chart that you have to check off marks. It's a little bit like writing a poem. You know, who are you writing the poem to? You don't write the poem to anybody right around you. You're not ri- writing it to her or to him or to them. You're writing it just openly. And uh, that's why those great poems survive because they are not for the audience that is, you know, reading them right now. They are for the kind of true audience that is not yet to come, the audience that doesn't even live yet. So, yes, I think architecture has that same mission. It has a poetic mission uh, of opening itself up. And, of course, uh, initially, uh, you might even be thought to doing to be unsuccessful when the Jewish Museum opened. People, you know, the critics of architecture thought, Who's going to come to this building? Nobody's going to, you know, it's crazy. Nobody's going to come there, uh, you know. But uh, people are different. People understand. It, sometimes it takes a little bit of time. There's maybe a time lag between what you propose and embedding it into the lives of the future. And so that's, to me, the process. Before we return to Daniel Liebeskind, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Artemist. Artemist is the world's fastest-growing online retail destination for exclusive Italian luxury design, decor, lighting, and gifts. Founded in 2015, Artemist celebrates and preserves authentic Italian craftsmanship by providing a global platform for independent designers and artisans. 
The site represents over 1,000 independent producers, designer makers, and artisans, and features thousands of exclusive products. The unparalleled online edit you find on Artemist includes the most extraordinary Italian makers for which the country is world-renowned. Design lovers and casual shoppers alike can search through more than 50,000 works of furniture, lighting, decorative arts, entertaining, and gifts. And you can take a closer look with multimedia content, such as 360-degree views, videos, and detailed descriptions of each maker's history and specialized techniques. Listeners of The Grand Tourist can enjoy 10% off at Artemist with code THEGRANDTOURIST. That's one word. So visit Artemis.com for more information. That's A-R-T-E-M-E-S-T.com. And, and, and looking back, um, a major part of design thinking and journalism and, and curation today is reevaluating the roles of women in history, not just as designers, but also as spouses, especially in architecture where, you know, spouses work together and live together and, and create together. Um, your wife, Nina, has been such a huge part of your life. I, I know that anybody that knows you uh, knows that she's not always not that far away. Tell me a little about your your early your early years together after you met and how has this relationship impacted uh you know the the Mr. Liebeskin I see today. Well, we are destined to something strange because our honeymoon was spent with two other recipients of an award uh to travel to see the works of Frank Lloyd Wright across America. We were, you know, all in a, you know, rented car. Uh two men one was a Swedish Lutheran. One was uh, another person who won an award. And our, you know, we got a scholarship to look at the works of Frank Lloyd Wright by driving across America from New York to Wisconsin to Chicago to Arizona and so on to wind up at the uh, uh, Aspen Design Conference. Wow. That was really marriage by, by architecture. Who else spends, uh, you know, their honeymoon inside of a car with two other men <laughs> <laughs> driving to see works of architecture? Now, to, to, be, to bring it up to the present, when I won the competition for the Jewish Museum Berlin, you know, I had never built a building before. Uh, I, I, I was, a, let's call that a paper architect, a theoretical architect. I never really wanted sort of, but when I won this competition and we decided to stay in Berlin, to try to build it, it was not so easy. I turned to Nina, my wife, and said, will you be my partner? And she said to me a very faithful word. She said, how can I be your partner? Never in my life have I been in an architect's office. And I said, the same thing applies to me. I've also never been in an architect's office. You know, I tried it for a day or two, and I thought, that's not for me. So for better or for worse, Nina, who's not an architect, but she's a woman of great character and intelligence and, and, and will, joined me. And in the beginning, it was very difficult because I would show her a drawing and she would say, what is that? I don't understand. You think it's nice? I don't get it. And in the beginning, I was kind of offended. I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen to us? But then I learned that the input of someone who's not an architect, who's really, let's say a model citizen, is far more important than having another architecture or engineering expert next to you. So I learned so much from Nina that, you know, architecture is not just for architects. It's for regular people. And she's been my partner. And really, how lucky am I? I you know, often people say, oh, Mr. Libeskin, she's the woman behind the man. I said, no, she's not behind. She's beside me. She's been always doing the work. And, and uh, you know, I wish to say this. 
that I would never be an architect without her. You know, if it was if she didn't join me, I probably would be sitting at a desk in some you know medieval uh, space, uh, thinking and meditating. But Nina has really been the one who's been allowed me to sort of enter the public world, and and she taught me many things. And I think women are no, let me say that often superior to the male intelligence. They have more knowledge, and you know they give birth. We don't. So, no, how much, you know, the, you can't say that that's something theoretical. So anyway, uh, I celebrate women. I celebrate women in architecture and all other professions. Uh, it's too bad that women still have to fight for equality. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, in Yiddish, you would say a shamda, a shame, that, that women are not completely equal in all walks of life. Is there any project in particular that just never would have happened even remotely? in the way that she had the most influence on? The Jewish Museum of Berlin would have never happened. I have to say, at one point, I really was ready to pack my uh, suitcase and, and leave Berlin, knowing that uh, there was no chance to build this building, that everybody rejected it. But Nina said, no, you go go with be with the kids. Let me now, and don't interfere with what I'm going to do because I'm going to be 24 hours busy. And she did uh, by, you know, you know, they, there's that saying, you can't fight city, you can't fight city hall. Well, she did fight city hall. She won that battle. And I would say she is to me a inspiration, an enigma. How, how does a person do that? I have no, not so, no such talents, uh, no such possibilities, but how lucky am I to work with her as a partner? And she's involved in, you know, mo- most people think, oh, is she doing the management? Is she doing something behind the scenes? No, she's involved in every aspect of my life. And I'm so lucky to to be with her. So the Trump administration played around with proposed regulations about how federal buildings would be designed and built, pushing for traditional architecture over modern buildings and, and that kind of thing. While these proposals are no longer an issue, I've always wanted to ask you how you felt about this idea of banning the very idea of contemporary architecture. What did you think when you heard about this proposal? Look, a president that has a golden toilet in his tower, uh, tells you everything about his sensibility. Uh, you know, authoritarians have forever tried to control architecture. Hitler tried to rebuild Berlin according to his maniacal vision. Mussolini rebuilt a lot of Italy. Stalin rebuilt Moscow and other cities in Eastern Europe. You know, this is an authoritarian uh, reflex. If you're an authoritarian, you want to oppress people by your singular idea. And it's not about classical architecture. It's about oppression. It's about creating an oppressive environment. It's not nothing to do with the Greek architects, nothing to do with the Roman architects. It has to do with a formula that is imposed to reduce the city to really a you know one-dimensional city. So I don't only oppose the idea. I find it repugnant for anybody who is a you know, and somebody who's free, who believes in an open society, who believes in democracy, this is not only repugnant, but is a symptom of authoritarianism. And I don't say this lightly because I lived in some of those cities. The big, you know, Karl Marx Allee in Berlin, the big streets around the Vatican, which have been emptied by from housing by Mussolini to make a monumental entry. Uh, the cities I knew, or Warsaw. It, yeah, and Warsaw, absolutely. So, but Warsaw, by the way, uh, 
to, to, to justice to Warsaw. Warsaw resisted communism, even though it was a communist country. They rebuilt the old city, Stare Miasto, uh, in concrete, but they refused to, you know, level it and, and do the Stalinist, you know, of course they had the Stalinist palace right next to it, but it's oppressive. It's terrible. It's, it's, we should all fight against it. We should, no one should just stay silent and be a fellow traveler of such indecency. It's hard for people that have never been to, to Warsaw. I went once and uh, it's such a beautiful European city. And then in the middle, you have this <laughs> Stalinist architecture and the plaza around it that sort of dominates it like a cartoon. It's almost, it's... You know, Dan, I, I built a, a tower, Zwota 44, right across from that Stalinist palace. And I thought a lot about it because this tower was for people to live in. It wasn't a symbolic tower, but I gave it a sort of the sweep of the Polish eagle in the skyline to sort of say something about that that space. Because that space that was vacated and made flat uh, by Stalin and, and the communists is as big as the old city of Warsaw. You know, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to understand the brutality uh, and the cynicism of planners and authorities and politicians who implemented these things. And it's so dangerous in our country when a president is demanding the reduction of democracy to a, uh, you know, to an authoritarian regime. I wanted to ask you about this next generation of architects coming up now who have become very virtual in their process and super digital. It's something I hear a lot from other types of designers um, about younger talents in their offices, this kind of avoidance of human in-person interaction with fabrics and objects and spaces. Is this a concern for you? Of course it is. But it's been already there, you know, with the computer-aided design where you can press, you know, a key and the lines just multiply in front of you and suddenly you have a whole building. You can print the building in five seconds, you know, and do the work very, very remotely and very abstractly. Uh, but that will never be a substitute for true spiritual experience of space because space has to do with people, with human scale, with the energy, with, with the eye, with, with, the, with the ear. Uh, I think no matter how sophisticated technology is, it will be uh, useless if it's not connected to the human being uh, in a full sense. And of course, we are in a different era. We are in an era where in, uh, architecture become can become just an industrial product. You know, you can produce a piece of architecture like we produce a washing machine, you know, a hairdryer, or even an airplane. But those are not really homes. You cannot make a home just by a command. A home has to do with a place, has to do with something that is so close to your heart. And I think architecture is the only art. You know, everything else can be self-sustaining. A painting is finished when it's finished. A, a, a symphony a score is finished. It's done. But architecture is incomplete. Architecture is awaiting, you know, the occupant. Without the occupant, it means nothing. So that is the core. That is the mystical sense of architecture. It's not an art like any other. It requires, just like the turtle requires the shell, just like the, you know, brain requires the skull, so does the spirit require an architectural space. And I think that's uh, something unique about architecture. It's unlike anything else. So if you had to plan a grand tour for a young student, what three structures would you tell that man or woman to 
travel and, and visit to get a real education? Well, there are so many structures. It's it's hard. You know, it's like saying, you know, what color do you like the best? And I always say the rainbow. That's the color I like the best. But if you ask me for three, you know, I'll tell you the three buildings that stopped, stopped my heart from beating. Uh, the pyramids in Giza, in Egypt. Oh, my God. Architecture as an instrument for immortality. Architecture as a vehicle for salvation. Incredible. I mean, that just is unbeatable. That's the beginning of a certain thought that has no end. And then when I was lucky to see the temples, uh, the Greek temples at Pestum in Italy, south of Naples, to see them, you know, because we didn't have money to go to a hotel. We slept, you know, we, we came at night. So we slept on some lounge chairs that were, you know, just empty. And in the morning, I didn't realize where I was, but I was right as the sun rose at the temples at Pestum, those great Greek temples, 500 BC or something. And when I saw the light, the, 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 the transformation of the structure into something that would make you believe in the gods, oh my God, that changed my life as well. And, and in modern times, you know, I, I would say I had that same experience when I visited Le Corbusier's uh, Ronchamp Chapel. Uh, in, in France, in, on the border of Switzerland, uh, in Ronchamp. Uh, it's a small, tiny little building, one of the smallest buildings that Corbusier ever did. Very simple, but again, that sense that architecture is about the human spirit. Of course, it's made out of materials, concrete and glass and so on. But at the end, it communicates not to your mind. It communicates to your whole sense of who you are and what the world is, what the cosmos is. So to me, those three, you know, are enough to change your life if you're lucky to see them. And there are many more. There are so many more that I could give that. And of course, that's the greatest teacher of all. I would recommend, say to a young person, you're not going to learn this from the screen. You're not going to learn this from going to the library. You can learn it only by touching those walls, by, by standing in awe of the masters and by sort of communing with something which is eternal. It's, it even might be in a ruin, you know, like the, you know, Pestum is in a ruin, but even in a ruin, it takes you into eternity and it is immortal, even if it disappears. Thank you to Daniel, his family, and his New York team for help making this chat possible. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall and transcriptions are by Kara Johnson. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein or at The Grand Tourist Podcast to learn more. Don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. I was wondering if you could teach me a little bit of Polish. How do I say good morning? Dzień dobry. Dzień dobry, pan. Dzień dobry. Dzień dobry. Good. I got, how was I? Was that okay? Excellent. Good pronunciation. Okay. What about uh, how are you? So, słychać. Okay, that you're going to break it down. So, so, słychać. Słychać. It's basically, you know, what do we hear? So, słychać. Jak się masz? Jak się masz? Yeah, how are you? How do I say, does this lamp come in matte black? Czy ta lampa jest w kolorze czarnym, takim niebieskawym? What about this magazine is looking a little thin? Jest trochę za za mały ten magazyn jest trochę za cienki. Um, what about last one? Uh, your deceptive computer rendering is insulting to me. 
<laughs> I would just say, dlaczego to kupiłeś ten komputer? Lepiej u, u, używaj twoją rękę. I am saying, why did you buy this computer? Better use your hands.